Hello, I'm Alice Driver and welcome to the Resilience Sessions, brought to you by Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, supported by Openreach and produced by The Drive Project. These are open and inspiring conversations where we meet ordinary people with extraordinary experiences, veterans who have suffered life-changing injuries, as well as figures from public life. Today you'll hear from Michelin-starred chef Michael Keynes and veteran Mark Ormrod. Mark was the first triple amputee to survive after being blown up by an IED in Afghanistan. And Michael survived a car crash in the UK where he lost his arm. They both talk about working hard as a form of rehabilitation and how time is a precious commodity. We hear how they get through the dark days, knowing that opportunity and living is still out there. We always start the podcast with each guest introducing each other. So, Michael, would you like to go first and introduce Mark to us, please? Yes, of course. Mark Ormrod, in the early hours of Christmas Eve 2007, War Marine Commando Mark Ormrod was on his routine foot patrol in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, when he stepped on and triggered an improvised explosive device. Thanks to the swift action of the men around him and the intervention of the medical emergency response team, he was airlifted to an emergency field hospital in a desperate attempt to try and save his life. He woke up three days later in the UK in Selyuk Hospital, Birmingham, both legs amputated above the knee and his right arm amputated above the elbow. He was the first UK triple amputee to survive the Afghanistan conflict. During his recovery, the doctors told him that he would never walk again and that he should prepare himself for the rest of his life in a wheelchair. However, Mark used his setback as a springboard for growth and reinvention. Today, Mark is an internationally acclaimed motivational speaker, a peak performance coach and the author of the award-winning autobiography, Man Down. He is a relentless charitable fundraiser and a daredevil who has performed stunts that many able-bodied athletes would find daunting. He has not used a wheelchair since 2009 and jokes about the fact that children call him the Iron Man because of his high-tech prosthetic legs. He is a mentor and a role model to other amputees and an ambassador for the Royal Marines Association. Mark has three children, a beautiful wife and an insatiable lust for life. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Now, Mark, over to you. Would you introduce Michael to us all? Of course. Michael Keynes was born in Exeter in 1969 and adopted into a large and loving family. He gained his passion for food from his mother, who he used to enjoy helping in the kitchen. Michael attended Exeter Catering College, then spent time honing his skills in Oxfordshire and France. He returned to Devon to take up the position of head chef at Gidley Park, already one of the most prestigious restaurants in the country. Yet only two months into the job, he suffered a terrible car accident in which he lost his right arm. Remarkably, he was back in the kitchen part-time within two weeks and full-time after just four, more determined than ever to pursue his dream of reaching the top of his profession. Michael held two Michelin stars for 18 consecutive years at Gidley Park, and in 2016, he took the leap of faith to create his own country house hotel, Limpston Manor. Michael appears regularly on Saturday Kitchen and has made numerous appearances on MasterChef, The Great British Menu and Sunday Brunch. 
he's cooked in 10 Downing Street for the Prime Minister, was awarded the AA Chef's Chef of the Year in 2007, and received an MBE in 2006. In 2015, he was made free man of the city of Exeter. Michael has a long history of commitment to community and to charities. He supports and encourages the next generation of hospitality stars through the Michael Keynes Academy at Exeter College and is the founder of the Exeter Festival of Southwest Food and Drink. Through the Michael Keynes Foundation, he supports Families for Children, Farms for City Children, Exeter Chiefs Exeter Foundation and One for the Boys. Thank wow. very much. <laughs> I know, I feel like I'm in good company today with you both. Thank you both for being here and being part of the conversation. But actually, I think, Michael, we need to thank you because um, we're currently here at your the beautiful Limpston Manor in East Devon. And I sort of wrote up what I thought it would be like. Um, then I get here and it's absolutely stunning. Thank you. Um, so this has been a bit of a labour of love for you, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a realisation of dream, really. And, and uh and it's just great to be able to you know, have that sort of fulfilment of a lifetime ambition. And just reading then just made me, I feel very humble to be in Mark's company, but also lucky that I've been able to pick myself up and, and get myself to, to where I am. And life's tough when you go outside and look at that view, you just realise actually, you know, we should make the most of it. Absolutely. And we're in one of the bedrooms at the moment. Yeah. And I can just say to anyone, I think Mark, you'll agree that you should definitely come and check this place this, out. This place is unreal. You know, it's, it's not often I'm just kind of like in awe and I just drove in and my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> and I came in this place, in this room, and it's just, it's stunning. Absolutely stunning. So now let's find out a bit about you both. Mark, you're actually our first Marine to be on um, the series. Everyone else has been Army. And now without wanting to cause a sort of diplomatic <laughs> incident here, but because you, you trained up the road at the Commander Training Centre. I did, yeah. But what does it mean to be a Marine? While I was serving, that's who I was. You know, when everyone's like, oh, do you know Mark Ormrod? That Yeah, he's a Royal Marine. It's an incredible feeling. It's, it's your identity. But when you leave, you kind of, I personally felt like I lost it a little bit, but now I feel like I've got it back. As, as a veteran, I think in the, in the UK as a whole, veterans are kind of getting a big, much bigger profile. Whereas, you know, before you used to leave the military and it was, he's ex-military. When you go to somewhere like America and it would be staff sergeant so-and-so retired. I, I feel we're kind of following that a little bit more now. So, you know, being in the Marines, I've been in since I was 17. It meant everything to me. And I kind of still feel like I am very tightly in that family now because of the way things have changed over the last eight or ten years. And you still sort of live and breathe those values that you learnt back there. Yeah, I, I completely crossed them over from my military life into my personal life and it's, it's just part of who I am and I, I enjoy living that way, you know. And so you're a local boy, aren't you? 40 minutes down the road in, in Plymouth. Yeah, with two Fs. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't far for me to come today. Okay, so I need to pronounce it like that. With two Fs, Okay, yeah. cool. And Michael, you're local, local yeah, boy as I'm well. I'm an Exeter right? boy. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So technically we're rivals. If, if, I, if I liked football, we'd be rivals. Okay. Yeah, we would. So. Okay, well, let's hopefully we'll be friends today. <laughs> yeah, of course. But um, you chose a very different path to the military and you became a chef. What do you still want to achieve with your cooking? Well, actually, I was always going to go into the military with the Marines being so close, it was either that or the Paras. And I had uh, entry for Marines, so that was actually originally going to be my journey. I was in the cadets and everything. But I also, alongside that, you know, I had this wonderful childhood 
where I, you know, was the youngest of six children. Obviously, I was adopted. We all had chores to do, so washing up, hoovering. And I enjoyed cooking and we used to grow vegetables and uh, fruit in the garden, bring them in and turn them into delicious meals. But never really thought of it as a career because my mind was set on joining the forces. And uh, until very later on in, in my sort of uh, time at school when I decided that I wanted to be a chef. And that was it. And I never looked back. Um, and at first it was, oh, chef and military maybe do it together and then I was persuaded that two years at college would be good fun and it was and that's the course I took in the end so yeah wow so, so different a very different path yeah a different path you know my father was a RAF pilot he, he flew hunter hawkers and lightning so that was the only sort of military background we had I think my parents are just relieved I didn't go into the the forces from the moment I started cooking professionally I've never looked back really I've loved it it's been incredible You've done you've done a right for yourself. Doing okay. I think you made the right choice. Yeah. Looking around. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Good. Now, Mark, I want you to take us to Afghanistan. We're in two thousand and seven and you're now a fully fledged member of the Marines and you're out with your company in Afghanistan. Can you tell us what you were doing out there? I mean, we're just doing what all the other guys leading up to that point had done. So there, there were two main bases, uh, Camp Bastion and Kandahar, and those were the air bases, the safe zones. Some people would spend their entire tour there, and then other people, like like me and my unit, we'd go there for a couple of days to acclimatise, get on the back of a helicopter, and then get flown out to a remote location into what we call a FOB, forward operating base, down in Helmand. And we'd operate from there. And, you know, each FOB had its own area of responsibility and its own mission, you know, and, and objectives during that tour. And on our tour, uh, a lot a lot of people think, you know, the Marines is all about, you know, taking out bad guys and blowing stuff up and stuff. But our overall mission was to win the hearts and minds of the locals and provide security for those guys, look after those guys, give them a better quality of life. So that was our mission when we got there. You know, we had a certain area that we had to patrol and look after, we would look after the guys, the civilians. Other guys from other units at that time were building schools for children and that kind of stuff. And then we just, we'd fight off the enemy and, and keep them away and in unison with other parts of the unit and other organisations that were trying to achieve the bigger objective. So, you know, it was a lot of foot patrolling, a lot of getting out on the ground, being proactive, conducting missions, confiscating weapons caches, disrupting enemy positions, that kind of stuff. And then obviously, reactively defending our positions from incoming enemy attacks. So. so can you tell us what happened on Christmas Eve of that year? So Christmas Eve, we were tasked, we going on another foot patrol. Nothing different to what we'd done before. In fact, when you look back at it, it was the easiest one we probably done in the three and a half months that we were there. It was very basic. We weren't venturing out very far. The idea was to leave the, the camp that we were working out of the FOB from the rear gate, patrol around in two sections, around the opposite sides, meet at the front gate and come back in. So it, it was really easy. So we did that. You know, we left. I was in the section that went north. The other guys went south. And then the quick version is we were stopped temporarily, gathering ourselves together to go back into the front entrance to camp and then finish up for the day. And just before we did finish... I wandered into a minefield with my section and stood on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Wow. Yeah, not a smart thing to do. Uh, I've had better Christmases, but it is what it is. And so what was the immediate impact of stepping on that IED? 
physically, mm-hmm. both legs pretty much ripped off from the knees down and my right arm, it was still attached. But if you imagine everything, all your bicep, the forearm was just ripped open and shredded and the whole bone had been shattered inside. So it wasn't salvageable. It's only really thanks to the professionalism of, of the guys on the ground and everyone after that, that I'm here today. And the more the more time goes on, the more people I meet from that incident, the more I learn about my own story. Because at one point, um, your medical team actually said that you were clinically dead just before you got into sh- the Chinook. Is that right? Yeah. I had no pulse. There were no veins to put intravenous lines in because they'd collapsed because of the blood loss. And then when they put an oxygen mask on me, it, it should have steamed up if I was breathing, but it didn't. So, and it sounds really harsh, but they just shoved me in a corner and just like, that guy's dead. Because there was another guy injured who had shrapnel in his back. And in that situation, and that's how you prioritise casualties. If he's dead, he's dead. You just throw him in the side and you get to work on the other guy so you don't have two dead guys. And it was only when one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go back and work on the other guy that they said my eyes started fluttering, which meant that my heart was beating. So then he alerted some of the other medics and then two of them came over to me and performed a procedure on me, which was supposed to involve them drilling into my tibia and fibia and gave an intravenous stance through there, but I didn't have any because they'd been ripped clean off. So they made a, a very quick decision and they drilled into the front and back of my hip bone. They put the intravenous lines in through there and three or four minutes later, they said I was awake again. Wow. And, and I've listened to the uh, medic who performed that operation mm-hmm. and he said that he had never been done before. And it was no. just literally like, where am I going to put this? Right. Well, I'll just sort of put it there. And so, thank yeah. God he did. So you, you've got to imagine... So it was only three days prior to that that the, whoever's in charge of the army medical guys said, yes, we can use it. But they'd only ever practised it in a sterile environment. Okay. Now you're in the back of a Chinook helicopter. You've got one guy dead, one guy dying. There's sand, dust everywhere. This thing's going left to right. As they're taking off, they're avoiding incoming fire and everyone's just all over the place. So to be able to make a decision like that, you know, that quickly and go, right, we're going to have to try the hip. Yeah. Having never been told to or trained to before is insane. And that's just testament to how good our medics are in the the armed forces over here in the UK. You were the first triple amputee to survive Afghanistan, weren't you? Yeah, there were other triple amputees before me, but unfortunately they they didn't survive. These techniques weren't around then. So yeah, I'm very fortunate that from everyone, from the guys on the ground to those medics, to the surgeons, to the people back in the UK and everyone after that, you know, I'm extremely lucky to be here. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm, And I'll come back to you in a second. Um, Mm -hmm. Michael, I want to bring you in here, if that's okay. Um, Now, you trained to be a chef, as as we've heard, and you'd proven yourself as this real talent. And you ended up as, um, I sort of ended up, you obviously worked very hard to become head chef of Gidley Park. That was back in 94. Can you tell us a bit about that time and that kind of journey of how you got there? Yeah. You know, my training was going off from college, Exeter to London, year and a half there, Grosvenor House Hotel, and one Michelin star restaurant in London, followed by three years at the Cat Saison with Raymond Blanc. So I started as a commie and left as acting junior Sue. Raymond suggested that I go to uh, France. So I decided to go work in two, three Michelin star establishments. One was in uh, Burgundy, the Hotel Coke d'Or, which is now called Relais de Bernard Oiseau. 
and uh, and the other was in Paris with a uh, Joël Robichon. Uh, Robichon was described almost like you know SAS of kitchens. It's pretty wow. hard score. Um, but when I joined Wazo, I was also the first English and black guy to work in the kitchen. So that was an interesting experience. We've only pigeon French, so, but I did two and a half years in France, and it was a brilliant experience working just over a year in uh, Burgundy and then a, a year in Paris. And it was whilst working in Paris, I got a call from Raymond, who had recommended me for the head chef job at Gidley Park. I was 25 at the time and thought, well, I'll, I'll go and have a look. Um, my CV was pretty impressive, and that pretty much got me the opportunity. So I came over in March, uh, cooked a couple of meals, got the job, and then started in June of that same year and came over to England. And it was pretty hard work initially. It was a lot of hours without any time off. But it didn't really matter. We were, we're used to the hours. and So what sort of hours are we talking? Well, you know, you kind of work 8 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock at night, and wow. maybe 7 o'clock in the morning. And that's the day, and then that was seven days when I started. So it was pretty long, long hours, and you don't mind doing it because I lived in, so it, it wasn't really an issue. And I kind of forgot that I had to go to a christening and, and I, you know, travel quite a distance. That was the mistake, really, is just you know driving and I wanted to drive because I had this new car and I thought it was cool I'll drive you know and I, I drove up okay and I, my brother and his girlfriend were in the car and I uh, went to the christening and that afternoon I, I wanted to get back for work so I said oh I'm going to drive back and this is August isn't it yeah holiday. so it's August bank holiday pretty I remember it being really hot and and starting to drive it was okay but then I just felt extremely tired and you think well open the window turn the music up and you do all the things that you think are going to actually make a difference and they don't make you know, any difference. You've got to pull over. And so I thought, well, I better get off the motorway. I was so tired that I actually nodded off and missed the turning. So I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll get to the next one. Now, it was bank holiday traffic, so you, you weren't really going quick. And uh, I nodded off to sleep and the other two people in the car were already asleep. And so the car drifted from the outside lane into the inner lane, hit a barrier which put me on a head-on collision to the centre barrier. I woke up on impact. And as it rode, it took my arm off. And we, you know, almost like roller-coasted down the central reservation. My brother said what woke him up was me screaming no, because I instantly knew what had gone on. And you can hear the, the sound of the crunch of the metal and the, the carnage that's going on around you. And then the car jumped off the central reservation and sort of luckily landed on the right side of the road, span a few times and I was suspended upside down in the car and I kind of then looked over and saw my arm was uh, obviously gone and well actually before I noticed my arm I noticed my hand on the floor because you are strapped in and you're holding the steering wheel and that's the bit that you're gripping and in between my wrist and my below elbow was taken out so the, immediately there was no no chance of any repair you know I knew it had gone the arm had gone my reaction to it was to get out of the car and I just got out of the car and started running away and then all all of these people just came towards me and a number of different sequences it's a bit like Mark was saying about you learn about your accident through the stories of others and a, a lorry driver pulled in front of us to stop ongoing cars somebody stopped and got out just so happens that a medic from the army who'd, who'd spent a lot of time working in Northern Ireland got out and came towards me to deal with my... The, and were the, you just walking along? At I was running away, you know, I was, I was out of there. It was a bit of an odd... All I can say is your, your reaction is to get away from the scene because yeah. 
that's the horror that you're trying to get away from. But and they what put, t- time period is this? Instant. You know, from like, are we talking sort of minutes? No, from the only the- way I could get out the car was on my side. And it, if you see the car, you'd be lucky that you survived it and got out. Anyone got out alive. And the fact that no one else was injured yeah. was a miracle. So, you know, my instant reaction was get out of the car, which I managed to wiggle out of the car and then travel away from the car. And then everybody came towards me and laid me down. And then they started trying to work on saving me, which took a while, as you can appreciate, for things to happen. And I was awake, so I, I know exactly what was going on around me. I began to fade away, very tired. They were concentrating on keeping me alive. And that was about not falling asleep and not slipping into a coma. So... And were you in pain? Because of... sometimes <laughs> yeah. people say initially, actually, you don't feel any pain. No, no, it's very painful, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you. You were in a lot of pain, weren't you? Yeah, well, what's happening is the adrenaline's there. Okay, so you know that you've lost your arm and, and it, it's, it's painful. Mm-hmm. But what was funny, though, there's a lady called Geraldine. She was, I just wanted to fade away. I just want, I say, I mean, I'd lost my arm. I was right-handed. I, I, what's the point in living with my mindset? I didn't know anyone had lost their limbs. The only person I knew was Lord Nelson. He was a hero. So I was feeling pretty bad. And, um, but this lady was leaning over me. And I remember she had a, she kind of was, you know, keeping me on the floor. And she had a knee in my other arm. And I said to her, you know, my arm's hurting. And she went, yeah, I know you've lost your arm. I said, no, not that arm, the arm that you're kneeing into. You know, it was really annoying pain. Okay. So you had this capacity to isolate the pain and yet know that the other arm was hurting for different reasons because she was kneeling on it. It's a trauma accident and I was awake. So you're dealing with the psychological issue of coming to terms with what's happened to you and the physical issue of, you know, the fact that you're losing a lot of blood. They stabilised my situation and got me to hospital and they just had to save my life by operating uh, rather than there was nothing to save I know there was nothing to save I mean uh, you know you could see what was missing I've got a very similar position in terms of the just below elbow and and nothing really was salvageable so I was awake and I said I just want to know you know can you save my arm and they went no we can't so at least when I woke up I knew um what happened to me and I that was think was the start of coming to terms with it was living through the accident and knowing that you know I kind of got to a point where I I wanted to live and survive the accident because people made me see the bigger picture of my circumstances Mm. family loved ones and 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 whatnot Mm. and that gave me a focus to survive the immediacy and then when you wake up you know you you're just dealing with the reality of your new circumstance it's it's it's, I was just gonna say it's funny you say that because so I remember my entire incident as well, and people say, you know, how do you be so positive with it? And and I'm I'm a big believer in like you that because you remember it and you went through it, when you wake up, you are more able to deal with it. I've got a lot of friends who were knocked unconscious from blasts, who don't remember everything, and then they suffer with flashbacks and things later on. But so much of the stuff you're saying, obviously, I can relate to it. Like, how much goes through your head in a short space of time? Like you said you're lying on the floor and straight away you're thinking, I don't know anybody who's an amputee and this, that and the other. And it feels very surreal, doesn't it? Like when you go through a traumatic incident, like all those people that are around you, it's like a dream. Yeah. And you're just, your head's going at 150,000 mile an hour, but outside is slow. Yeah, it you know, is. It's bizarre. You almost detach yourself from the situation. And they say, you say, you know, your life flashes in front of you before, you know, before you die. 
Now, I didn't die. My dad says, well, want your time. Fair enough, dad. But, you know, it was tough. It was tough to survive it as it was for you. But for me, you contemplate what your life has been. That's what I did. I thought if I die now, which is a possibility, then I I need to make sure that I think about everything about what it is. And I was happy because that was the consequence of my accident to leave it there. But since then, I've been living my life like it's my last day every day. Because you also come away from something like that and you realise that, you know, life is short and it's cruel and it can be a small mistake by me to fall asleep. And I paid the ultimate price for that. And um, and I felt in that experience was, um, you know, was difficult to, to deal with after more so than the actual survival part. It was living with the disability that but in, in a way became more challenging. Mm. You know, nightmares were the days and dreams were, you know, I dreamt that I had two arms, woke up, I had one. You know, you took me a year to come to terms with looking back at my life and thinking, well, this time last year, you know, think, and then a year later you progress and you look back and you think, well, look how much progress I've made. Look how different things were a year ago and, and that whole small steps, you know, leading to your recovery, both mentally and physically, is, is really important. How did you get through that? Well, it's interesting because um, other than the loss of arm, I, they couldn't believe there was no superficial or, or any other injuries. So I was, after being released from hospital after six days, I, I, got, I went home. That was difficult leaving hospital because it's all secure. Everyone comes to see you. You've got to face the fact that you're driving home. Going home is always a, a difficult time anyway, and you're going back. This changed person, and I cried all the way home till I fell asleep. Got home... You know, welcome home, Michael, everyone there to see you. Went to the toilet, you know, cried again. And it was difficult. And then a couple of days later, my dad put up an art easel. And I thought, okay. well, what's the point? You know, I was right-handed, you know, now I'm left. And then I looked at it. I thought, well, I'll, I'll try, I'll start and I'll try and draw the view and paint the view from the house. And it was a really good exercise because it made me realise that the eye to hand was still there. And I hadn't really lost anything. Well, I lost my arm, but I hadn't. I could still think, I could still, you know, I still had my talent of my, you know, I just had to learn to use my left hand. So I went to the doctor to get my stitches out and I said, what do I do now? And he said, well, do what you want. I said, can I go back to work? And he said, yeah. So two weeks later, I went back part time and uh, three, four weeks later, I went back full time because I kind of just felt that I had to just get on with it. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, bizarrely, I didn't have any insurance payout. That's not a problem. But the point is, even if that was the case, I wasn't about to wait to see if I would cope. I just wanted to get back in, mm. get back on the bike and, and try and ride it and then rehabilitate back into the work environment. And so the first question was, you know, I lost my arm, was will I have my job? You know, what will become of this career I'd worked so hard to achieve? But my work became my rehabilitation. You know, it was a very big part of moving my life on was getting back in the kitchen and getting you know, to terms with that loss of arm and how I could rehabilitate, get a prosthetic and, and carry my life on, you know. And and that was a big part of dealing with it because so much of what I'd done in my life was about my career and about being a chef. And the thought of not being a chef was more devastating. So it's almost like, well, I've got nothing to lose. Ironically, I had everything to lose. So why not give it a go? Yeah. I'll try it. I'll try it. And, um, and so I did. That's such an amazing attitude to have and so practical as well. If I knew that about you going back to work after two weeks, I think I might have had longer time off, you know, with the yeah, flu. could have done with holidays. 
Um, but it's it's that drive that clearly has helped you, and I and that your career has been your rehab. Yeah, I think so. It's the fear the fear of of losing the opportunity. It's people prejudge people with disabilities all the time, and whether or not that's you know the mental agility or, or your physical ability, people always assume that you 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 know that's it you're finished. So people have written me off mm-hmm. before I even got back to work, and so those prejudices are always there. And they can never imagine what it's like. And how could they? Because we know what it's like to live yeah. with, you know, with one arm or, in your case, you know, triple amputee. It's, but I went to America to find out about prosthetics. And I met people who just had incredible courage and, frankly, were inspirational and made me look pretty lucky. And I just thought, what am I complaining about? You know, I've got my mobility. Yeah, I've lost an arm, but, boy, I have a better quality of life than some people even with two arms. So it became a, a less about feeling sorry for myself and, and more about a fulfilment of my own ambition and not letting this be an obstacle. And the other element was trying to use this as an inspirational story to help others. Yeah. Because like your programme, I didn't know anyone who'd lost their arm. This was pre-Iraq and pre-Afghanistan. So we didn't have lots of servicemen and women or, you know, coming back from war zones with trauma accidents and that therefore made me think about people in a similar circumstance and that was difficult because I couldn't think of anyone other than Horatio Nelson and he was pretty pretty decorated and I just was the guy that fell asleep at the wheel and I felt pretty stupid frankly. I think it's amazing what you've achieved and how that you just didn't want that to define you Mm. and you're sort of known for the all these amazing achievements so I mean Mark you must be able to relate to what Michael's saying you obviously you got injured in 2007 but in 2009 you stopped using a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and you have spoken about other above knee double amputees looking at you on your prosthetics and just going I can't believe this guy isn't in a wheelchair and you went out to America as well I think to help you in that journey tell us a bit about that so back in hospital when um I was told I would never walk again because of how difficult prosthetics were. I went into a bad place and then I, you know, were blessed with the internet. So I got online, I did a bit of research, came across a guy called Cameron in America, who was a triple amputee and I went out to meet him. The first week I went to America, we went to a a conference called the Amputee Coalition of America and people flew in from all over the world and I was new to this and all these guys just kind of took me into this new family that I was quite resistant to be a part of and trained me and coached me and mentored me. And like you just said, I, I saw quadruple amputees. And I'm like, come on, life's easy. At least I've got one working on. <laughs> yeah. And these guys are walking around with double above knees, double above elbows, like the hardest form of amputation you could think of and just getting on with it every day. And they, they pushed me and they mentored me and they, they trained me and coached me to eventually, you know, I, I just ditched the wheelchair and was a full-time prosthetic user. And, and this year, on the 9th of June, it's it's 10 years. Wow. But a, a lot of people, the beginning, like any journey, is really, really, really difficult. Mm. But a lot of people shy away from it because a double above knee amputee takes between 300 and 500% more energy to do anything than anyone else. So often when I'm on stage, if I'm sharing my story for an hour... I tell the audience after, if you'd have been up here for an hour, jogging on the spot, knees to chest for an hour, trying to deliver a presentation, that's what it's like for me just to stand here. You know, it was unbelievably difficult, but I, like Michael, saw other people around me that were, in my opinion, in a worse situation, who had it harder. And 
it, it just pushed me to, to feel grateful for prosthetics, for coaches, for mentors, for technology, the internet, being able to find guys online who are, have overcome their injuries that could inspire me to go on to overcome mine. My, my personal opinion is I don't think there's a better time in the history of the world to be disabled because everything's accessible now, you know? And um, Michael, you've spoken about the fact the accident has made you into being a better man. Can you tell us more about that? Well, you're at your lowest point, you know, and I only survived, and I'm sure Mark can relate to this, because other people stopped and took time to care for me at a time where I was hopeless. You know, I never survived that day, but for the bravery of others to intervene and take time to ensure that I survived. And so that makes you very humble because you realise actually that, you know, you don't take people for granted anymore. You don't want to constantly oppress people. You want to help them get on in life as somebody did for me. So, you know, I look at life differently now and I look at life through the eyes of somebody that is here because people took time uh, and courage to help me survive. And that's a big part of my story, you know, and I, I can't thank those people enough. Everybody paid their part, but equally at the same time, you know, so much, you know, you can achieve in life with uh, a positive mindset and putting yourself around, you know, positive people. And that's really the way I want to approach life. And that's why I'm a better person, because I don't dwell on negatives, because, you know, I believe you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And and the brick walls, you know, you, you can't sometimes get through it, but if you, you can walk around it, you can find another way or just come back to it later, you know. I, so there's so many things I've learned, learned from what I've gone through. I wouldn't want to anyone to go through what I've been through it's not an easy thing not everyone has the strength either to persevere that's why we have to I'm sure Mark feels the same we have to show our courage in, in, a, in a way that that is humble but at the same time inspirational for others because we know we had our dark moments and times and there are days when you didn't want to get up and go to work and there are days that you didn't feel like you wanted to carry on but we have and life gets easier not less challenging but we get used to living and then we realize that actually you know what there's still a lot of life out there to live and lots of opportunities to be had you know and I think that's a blessing thank you that's a wonderful attitude to have now Mark you were passionate about the idea that everyone in life needs to take responsibility for their own actions Mm -hmm. can you tell us more about that um their actions yeah but also their situations okay Every decision that any of us ever make throughout our entire lives leads us to exactly where we are right now. Mm-hmm. So I decided to join the military. I decided to be a soldier, to go to Afghanistan, to go out on that patrol. And so it, it's my responsibility not to blame the military, not to blame the Taliban, not to blame anyone else. It, it was me. So the way I found to be positive with my situation, I think, and, and to move forward with it is to accept responsibility for my situation as early on as possible and realise your decisions led to this point and now the decisions you make from this point, you know, back when I was in hospital, are going to take you either to a good place or a bad place. Mm. So, you know, it's just about taking responsibility for your situation, not blaming other people and realising that at the end of the day, you can get a lot of help and assistance, but ultimately you're the only one that can take your life to where you want it to be. Michael, you were nodding your head there. Yeah, no, I mean, I I spent a lot of time asking myself, if not why, how, if only, you know, if only my arm was amputated lower down, it would have been easier. And But then you actually say, yeah, but you're here, you survived. Could have been worse, but actually, more importantly, is what you do 
next that matters most, isn't it? And and I agree with that. You've got to take responsibility. You know, I fell asleep at the wheel. That was irresponsible. That's my fault. I'm blessed that we didn't, you know, nobody lost their life that day. And I also feel happier that I was the person that took the main effect of that accident. Kind of live with that. Do you Have you forgiven yourself for that? Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. But, but I think we can you, all sort of relate, relate to that. To it, yeah. Absolutely. That, it could happen to, to anyone. Other people yeah. don't. And it's dangerous. So that campaign that says, you know, pull over and have a have a coffee and, and mm. a break is so important. I don't drive anywhere anymore, any of any distance. I get driven because my work half an hour is fine, an hour max if I'm working a lot. Thereafter it's just it's just too much of a risk for me. I still work a lot of hours. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've forgiven myself for it and I've come to terms with it. Sometimes the disability bit, you know, the loss of arm not feeling so confident with at the beach or in a pool mm. but that takes time that's mm. more psychological that's pride you know that's yeah don't, don't you things. enjoy getting like the disabled parking space i don't get it <laughs> I, I, I call it vip parking <laughs> and the disabled toilet they're always cleaner than everyone else's yeah, so i'm like welcome to the executive bathroom <laughs> <laughs> so i just reframe it into something yeah, more positive absolutely. it's more yeah. spacious exactly it's a luxury <laughs> But you've got to, we've got to make it, I mean, you know, we laugh about our disabilities or our loss of limbs and it is, we own it. We make it ours and we can say that I'm harmless and people come up to me and they, they want to shake my arm, arm and I put my left foot and they say, what has happened to your arm, mate? And I said, oh, I lost it in a car accident. And they say, sorry. And I said, no, it's not your fault. You know, don't worry about it. But you've got to go on and not brave face on, but just enjoy life, you know. I long give forgive myself and long stop yeah. feeling sorry for myself yeah but I think there's this word inspirational that's kind of banded about a lot and I would genuinely say to both of you I would describe you both with that that word how, how do you feel about that well I just I guess a bit like you we just we just do what we do just because, do yeah that's, that's what I, I struggle do you with hate being t- no I, I, told I appreciate it but I struggle with it because it is you know, this has happened to us both and many others, but all we do is live our life and get on with it and be dads and husbands and have careers. And it's a little bit harder and you're a little bit slower, but you're just effectively living. Mm. And I'm not, I don't think I'm much different to what I was before. It just took me getting free limbs blown off for people to realise it. Do you know what I mean? I, I, just, I was as motivated and as driven as I was before and I'd set goals and I had ambitions and everything. Yeah, it's just, it's just living, isn't it? Living your life. It is, but I think that's a, a Royal Marine commando spirit is to become Royal Marine, to achieve what you have achieved as an individual. Not many people do. You know, I've met a lot, a lot of Marines, a lot of servicemen, very humble. They always put duty first. Uh, but I, I agree. I, I love the fact that um, we can get on in, with our lives and have the courage to do that. And whilst doing it, it being an inspirational role model, because, yeah, I, I know that, that even people who haven't been for our circumstances they're just having a tough day mm. and they turn on the tv and they see your story or listen to my story and they think you know what actually you know maybe life isn't so bad yeah. and, and our our effects are easy for people to see but some people carry mental health issues and yes, sure. you can't see you meet the person they look absolutely normal yet mm-hmm. um they struggle with other demons what advice do you have for anyone who's going through their own challenges and their dark days. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm coming from a big, smelly, hairy, former Royal Marine. It's quite difficult to say, but I think talking to people when you're in your darkest days helps a lot. You know, I don't think anyone should ever be too proud to either talk to somebody about what's going on inside or to reach out for help. There are 
probably thousands of people that have helped me from the day I was injured to get to where I am now. And it's because I'm I'm not scared to ask for it. It was hard in the beginning because I was too proud. But when I realised the power that it had to reach out and say, listen, I'm struggling, can you help me with this? Cameron, can you teach me this? And I saw the results. I thought, well, why don't I do this sooner? You know, and a lot of people, especially men, I think, are too insular and they, they're too afraid to go and ask about whatever they're going too through. Proud. Too proud, yeah. And there's this whole stigma around everything. And, you know, my advice for anyone going through challenge or adversity or, or dark times is talk to someone about it, reach out for help. And then you touched on it earlier, Michael, just I think having good people around you is unbelievably powerful. Now, you've both spoken about the impact of your family. And Mark, you have three children. I do. And you met Becky, your wife, I think, was it a year before you got injured? Yes. And then you asked her to marry you. I did. I woke up uh, after a three-day coma. And all I really remember was, it was like a scene out of a movie where you someone's on a going into an A&E and they're getting rushed in on a car and they just see the lights on the ceiling and it's all blurry. And I remember that and I was trying to open my eyes. I couldn't really see the lights and it felt like someone had hung lead weights on my eyes and I was putting all my energy into opening my eyes but I couldn't do it. And I could hear people around me. And every time they said something, it echoed like four or five times. And I heard Becky's voice and she could see me like kind of grumbling through this respirator thing. And so she took it off and... It took me about four or five times to say it to her. And she could feel her getting closer, trying to put her ear on my mouth to hear what I was saying. And eventually she turned around and said, did you just ask me to marry you? And I mustered up the strength to give this little smirk and then just passed out, fell back to sleep again. She obviously said yes. She did say yes. Romantic. Yeah. Wow. But family has been fundamental to your recovery and, and success, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, especially the little ones. I've, I've always thought I can tell them what to do and kind of try and tell them how, you know, how to be a good person, what to do and how to achieve things in your life or overcome obstacles. But I think it's more powerful when you show them as well. So on the times when I do struggle and, and things are difficult, that gives me that drive to be like, just get on with it, mate. Get up, put your legs on, get out the door and show the kids every day you're getting up. You know, facing your challenges, going out there, dominating and coming home. So they're a, a driver, a big driver. And can you relate to that, Michael? Yeah, I've got three kids then, 15, 13 and, and 6. And uh, yeah, they give ex, extra purpose in your life. You know, my daughter got very upset when she found out the story. Uh, but she obviously sees me as dad as I am. But she didn't really know know my story. But hopefully we, we inspire our children to, to live a much more positive life but also they give me extra purpose as well in life you know they must be very proud of you yeah pride yeah I think you know I do remind them they've only got one dad so you know <laughs> love or hate I am yeah, I'm there but no they are proud they're proud of what we you know we've achieved as family what I've achieved as an individual I've been supported you know along the way family friends loved ones and it's been a massive part of my of my own endurance to to go on and be successful with that support and the children give me uh, the extra energy to get up in the morning to make pancakes when I'm knackered and take them out and enjoy life with them. Sounds amazing. Now, as well as your um, success that you've had chefing, you've also set up your Michael Caine's Foundation and you support lots of charities and mm. foundations. Why is that important to you? I think giving something back is very important. 
again, it goes back to the fact that I survived a very difficult accident because other people cared. And uh, I think mentoring and inspiring people is important for the next generation, showing them what's possible in the industry uh, is important, supporting charities that are close to your heart or, or things that are cl- close to the community is important. I think if you're in a public a public figure or somebody that's successful, then you should look to give something back. I think we, we have that responsibility to nurture the next generation, but also to reach out into the community and do something for it. But, you know, at the same time, our stories are inspirational. But also it's like therapy sometimes too, you know, to be able to, to have the outlet to talk about it, you know, it's also important. And you never know what your impact's going to be either. So, you know, anyone listening to this podcast is the people that you potentially could help. And I think that's what's really exciting as well. And, you know, Mark, just coming to you now, you've gone on to become this an inspirational speaker and coach, a successful social media influencer. You've got your own business and, you know, you didn't just win medals at the um, Invictus Games. You sort of became the poster boy globally for them. So you've done all right Thank as you. well. Thank you. But, you know, Michael's spoken about the importance of giving back. I know this is really important to you as well. Tell yeah. us a bit about that. So initially, uh, years and years and years ago, when I started doing the charity work, I, I remember thinking, because within the first two weeks of being in hospital, I was visited by a military charity. And, and it sounds maybe random and a bit weird but they basically came and introduced themselves to me and I didn't want to speak to them because I hadn't accepted being an amputee yet but they were willing to take on a massive burden of paperwork and stuff that was at the beginning of my recovery and it sounds bizarre but with like the pensions and stuff and they took that off and then as I progressed out of my rehab I met another one and another one and there were adaptive adventure training expeditions and help with housing and, and all these people started helping me and I was like we need to give back Becky we need to do something for these guys because you know unfortunately I was injured early on but then more and more people started coming through the system and we're like right, we need to do something to help these guys and to help these guys and to help these guys and so you start doing more and more and it, selfishly it feels really nice you know but you can kind of mix it up and I remember using fundraising events to challenge myself physically to see what I could do but then tie it with a fundraiser as a way of contributing and now you know 11 years down the line I look at it a little bit differently I'm still do it for that reason but then I, th- I think more and more about the hundreds and maybe thousands of people that were involved in my recovery from point of explosion to now and I just kind of feel like I owe it to those people you know and that's why I live my life the way I do it's it's my way of saying thank you to them and some of them I'll never even meet but I think the worst thing I could ever do was give up on prosthetics, sit in a wheelchair, drink, get fat, you know, and just live a, just waste my life after all the effort they put into saving it. In my opinion, the the ultimate path to fulfillment is is just to give back and help other people. It, it's like I said, it's selfish, but it makes you feel great when you do it. Great, thank you. And we're just sort of getting to the end now, but I'm just going to ask you both: What does being resilient mean to you? Put you on the spot. Ooh. Um, I think that's what we've been talking about the entire time really <laughs> it's, it's, it's facing you don't, you don't have to lose a limb to be resilient but it's facing a challenge or adversity or some difficulty getting knocked on your backside but then dusting yourself off and being like okay that, that's a setback you know life goes on 
and I'm going to live it to the fullest, you know, and just fighting back against the, the difficulties in your life, you know, and never giving up. Great. Yeah, I think for me, it's, uh, it's I, I, yeah, I agree with all that and uh, would say that to never lose your spirit and who you are through life's challenges. And I think Mark said it, you know, the person he was is ultimately who he is now. But it brought, circumstances brought that real inner strength out of him. To be challenged in life is, is, is it's only then when you really, whether or not it be sport or, or work, it, until you challenge yourself or life challenges you, you don't realise how much you can give mm-hmm. or how much is within you, what capacity you have to overcome or to... And I think that's it. That spirit of human endeavour makes you resilient. And it's not always there for everybody, but we have it all within our, us. But I think that's it. Never give up that spirit of who you are. Amazing. Thank you so much. Now, my final question. We've now come to the end. How have you found our conversation today? I've had a great time. Yeah. I know it's been brilliant to meet you, Michael. Yeah, I've, I've been looking forward to it. And you're really good at this, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've learned a lot. Thanks, um, I've learned a lot about both of you guys. So thank you for inviting me on. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you. How about you, Michael? Yeah, it's been great. It's actually nice to listen and uh, talk with Mark in, and relate to what he went through. Some of, obviously, is very unique to his challenge, but also recognise that we both, you know, have ended up where we are with a similar outlook and a, a very similar ethos and philosophy of life. But it's been a great experience. But more importantly, I hope that our stories can help other people mm. get through their challenges. And I think in that regard, it's been hugely rewarding for me to talk and share our stories together. Brilliant. Well, thank you both so much, Michael Keynes and Mark Ormrod. Thank you. Thank you. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed here in the podcast, then please have a look at our webpage or show notes where you'll be able to find more information. Thank you for downloading this episode. And why not subscribe and share it with your friends and family? You never know who it might help. The Resilient Sessions has been inspired by Making Generation R, a campaign which aims to create a generation of resilient people across the UK. The series is brought to you by Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, and is based on an original idea by Cy Harmer and The Drive Project. The Resilient Sessions are supported by Openreach and produced by The Drive Project.